Hello, hello, hello. Ciao, ciao. What's good? Wagwan. Salams. What's happening, people? Welcome to episode 129 of the Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is the Repeat Beat Poet, aka PJ, your conversational host doing the verbose most, bringing you unfiltered and in-depth interviews with poets that work magic with words. And this week we have a doozy. Um, I hope you're doing okay wherever you are, however you're listening. Um, This week's been exhausting, (laughs) frankly, for me. Um, So I've taken a bit of refuge in going on these long, meditative, deep walks up and down uh, the River Lee in East London, um, where I live. And I've been listening to two fantastic audiobooks. The first one is uh, a novel written by the poet Selena Godden. It's called Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. Um, it's a experimental kind of form, but it's just really engrossing. I highly advise you to read it. It's equally life-affirming and morbid. It's intoxicatingly like uplifting and energetic especially the way that selena reads it but it's also like soberingly grounded too um so there's one for your to read lists and to offset an even weirder valentine's day weekend than usual um i listened to bell hooks's all about love new visions um it's my first time listening to this incredible book of non-fiction around love and it's 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 blown my mind changed the way that i view the world the way i look at love the way i look at you know love of myself love of other people different types of love it feels like bell hooks has written kind of a universal marker in in the ground as a way to understand love um, and it's a book I'm going to periodically return to at important times in my life, I'm very sure. So there's another one for your to-read lists. As for now, though, um, I hope you're ready for another fine episode of Lunar Poetry Goodness. This week's guest is the educator, award-winning performance poet and published writer, the one and only Sahima Manzor Khan, coming out of Leeds. Um, I've been a cheerleader for Sahima since first seeing her shoot to visibility after her piece. This is not a humanising poem went viral after I think the 2018 Roundhouse Poetry Slam. Um, but what keeps me avidly checking for her every poem and every comment piece published in, you know, everywhere from Galdem to The Independent to Al Jazeera, The Guardian... What keeps me checking for Sahima's work is that in all of her writing, she works to disrupt common understandings of history and race and knowledge and power, particularly interrogating the purpose of narratives around like Muslim people and gender and violence and how these things are are positioned. Uh, she's an, she's a wicked writer. She's the co-author of the anthology A Fly Girl's Guide to University, Being a Woman of Colour at Cambridge and Other Institutions of Power and Elitism. She's got a debut collection out with Verve Poetry Press, the 
excellently titled Post-Colonial Banter. Um, that also comes recommended by some of the coolest anti-imperialists of our country and time. Uh, the UK hip-hop legend Loki, uh, the professors uh, Priyam Vada Gopal and Dr. Kinder Andrews as well. Um, Sahaim is also an essayist, a co-essayist in I Refuse to Condemn, Resisting Racism in Times of National Security. And when she's not writing poetry, she also hosts the Breaking Binaries podcast too. Um, her spoken word performances have millions of views online. Um, and Sahima is also currently a visiting research fellow at Queen Mary's University in London. And her poetry, articles and books can be found on university and school syllabi. This chat was recorded on the 28th of January and... Through looking at Sahima's work, we get into topics like how to build the confidence to speak your truth as a writer. Uh, we speak about how to challenge the legacies of British colonialism and where those legacies kind of rear their ugly heads um, in the worlds of like the museum and and libraries and archives and how we teach history in the UK. And of course, of course, there is some hip hop chat for the hip hop heads. Remember, if you do enjoy the podcast, please do save, like, rate and download it and share it with somebody who might enjoy it. Word of mouth has always been the best recommendation for us and the more people talking about poetry, the better. So without any further ado, let's get into the conversation. Hello, 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 the wonderful Sahima Manzor Khan. Are you there? Hi, so happy to be here. Feeling like this has uh, woken me out of my stupid today. <laughs> hey, hey, well, glad to, glad to have you on the Lunar Poetry Podcast. Um, it'd been, uh, it was already a couple of weeks, me trying to figure out when I can have you on, just trying to get this time. But you are definitely somebody who I, uh, a, a, a poet who inspires me and somebody who I love uh, having deep conversations with, meaningful conversations with. Uh, so, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on in this early section of the podcast. Well, I really appreciate that, man. You're always um, so supportive of my work, and I feel like, yeah, uh, it's, it's always a privilege to, to have your support as, as somebody who's so... I see you as someone who's just super knowledgeable about the history of poetry, the poetry scene. Po like, I feel like you, you, you give poetry the respect it deserves. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, that, that guy, he actually... He's an actual poet. That's that's my like my in my head when I think of you. That's who I, I'm thinking. I'm like this guy actually loves. He probably loves this this thing. <laughs> I'm trying to be like you, G. I'm I'm looking at Sahima, thinking they're a real poet going out speaking in such uh with such clarity and strength within so many like challenging spaces, but really calling the beast by its name and like naming the issue. Oftentimes to uh, to paraphrase bell hooks. It's like, you know, the white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy. But you always bring yourself so meaningfully and with such clarity, like with your criticism and with your with your speaking. I watch your lectures, G. I'm a fan. <laughs> oh, honestly, thank you, man. Like, if it comes across like that, that's, that's great. That is great because I think clarity is, oh, that is tough. It's a tough one to try and uh, achieve. But if it's that, if, I, I, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. So good, so good. So um, for those um, of our listeners who haven't uh, heard of you or seen your work, 
would you just like to introduce yourself? Because I mean, I would throw all of the superlatives very early on as we've seen. <laughs> but how would you how would you introduce yourself? <laughs> so basically, I I, I'm, I never fix on a good introduction, but I think what I like to describe what I do as is I'm an educator, I'm a writer and a poet. Um, and I, I say educated because I think that's the thing that ties together all the different things I do. You know, sometimes, as you say, I've, I give lectures, I speak on panels, um, you know, I have a poetry collection, but I've also written essays for, for different anthologies about different things. I've written for, you know, The Guardian, Independent. So there's this whole amalgamation of things. But I think what ties it all together is that I love to think through ideas with people. I love to share those ideas. I love to share ways of thinking about things that have really changed my experience in the world and kind of say to other people, look, you know, th- this is another way of thinking about this thing. And so, you know, I, I podcast, I workshop, I do all these different things. And I feel like, yeah, that that's why I kind of stick to the word educator, because it's, I think at its heart, that's maybe where I am most uh, comfortable and most happy. And, uh, you know, learning and receiving and giving ideas is, is really what I feel is, you know, unique to humans and something that we, we uh, should be spending more time doing. Yeah, it's something that is uh, is so central to the art of poetry as well. Um, you know, that sense of storytelling as well, and also kind of bearing witness. You know, um, yeah, using poetry as a using art as as a way to teach each other about how the world appears to each other and feelings and intentions and those deep dark things that maybe we don't want to share or the things we want to scream out loud. Definitely, I think that really poetry is one of the most powerful ways of, of sharing ideas and educating because we you know the way that education system and the ways we think about schooling kind of dull I guess and like you know limit the the types of, of knowledge that we really see as knowledge the types of truth we see as truth the types of any record of the past that we see to be true uh, it, it, poetry really gives us a completely different way to do that and as you say it allows us to kind of delve into other forms of knowing things you know you don't have to use that really I don't know that western epistemology of point evidence explanation you can just say look this is how I feel and I and I tell you it's true because you know I know it to be true from the my experiences engaging in the world so I yeah I think you're you're dead right there and I think that's why poetry is just so it speaks to so many people Mm, yeah yeah speaks to uh, it's this thing that I've um across many years of, of listening to, to Luna is you, you realize how many different types of people and realize is, is a is a is a lazy way of saying you you begin to see the fullness and like the the complexity and the nuance in the art form and the passion that you love like as I get into poetry um you know with more and more each passing day and week platforms like this and and obviously like um <laughs> many other great poetry podcasts but lots of interview podcasts they give a way to get further into the art um, and that's what I want to do um, across the next maybe hour with 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 your fine self with your poetry as well and your wider work amazing yeah looking forward to this man sick sick so I'm thinking maybe we start with a poem to get the conversation going um I mean I'm holding this wonderful copy of post-colonial banter published by verve poetry uh, verve poetry press um and this is your debut collection is it not absolutely yeah it's uh my my baby this was uh 2019 this came out and which now feels you know another century a century ago (laughs) um different world we were in but yeah yeah it's uh it's me putting out all the words that probably writing that I'd done for about eight, six to eight years before that, I guess, all in here. 
That's super cool. That's super cool. What would you like to read for us? Wicked. So I'm going to read uh, my poem called Where Is My History? Um, this was actually written as a, as a commission for this really cool project in Birmingham um, that was really like questioning notions of what the past is and where we find it and, you know, what, what counts as history. So uh, without, without spoilers, I'll, <laughs> I'll just go straight for it. My history is imprinted in the spaces between the ink printed on pressed pages. My history is the screams shouting out through the silent slots in syllabi. It is caged in glass cases to be for its own safety by the institutions which narrate it as their own. Because my history lies in the choices not recorded about which stories should be hoarded and called archives. And my archives are the chicken shops, the taxi stops, the back seats of rentals, the inside hems of headscarves, women's conversations, women's congregations, women's contemplations, which you won't find in your local heritage site. No, because my history is the shame of your history. The body buried in the back garden with no gravestone, but in fact, not so shameful, no, for it is also adorning your proudest buildings, the ones I'm searched before entering, as if my bringing something in would be disturbing, as if my things weren't already coveted and stolen, sorry, read salvaged and reallocated to make up these museums in the first place. It's almost as if history is less about what happened than maintaining ideology. Because when you investigate a story with half the participants absent, and don't worry about the translation, want only to fit the narrative to the nation, then is it surprising that what's surmised is that my history is not? That my past is culture and ancient kingdoms, never politics or philosophy. My ideas are religion and oriental, tribes, norms and alternative remedies whilst yours are universal teleologies and superior methodologies. No, it's no surprise my past is passed over and pushed into the peripheries despite being palpable in every premise of what gives Britain history. Because to find it would be to remember that if Britain is Tudors and Victorians, it's also slavers and plantations, the colonies and the colonised. To find my past would be to remember that every object in the museum that is said to be objectively seen was plundered and stripped of value for the perusal of researchers and big purses to spectate and win awards. Whilst those of us who are still seen as backwards, who don't get the time or space to explore artefacts, are in fact the outcome of their unnarrated relations to colonial plunder and false salvation. So when you ask where my past is, Ask instead what yours is without mine. Raw, mate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, I miss live audiences, man. Miss the energy. I was getting all into it then, and you're like, you know, when to look up at and see the, the people around you. Makes me miss poetry spaces. <laughs> well, I'm sure everybody listening is also like, you know, thrown into that moment that 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 performance um thank you for sharing that that was um that was really really enrapturing um and actually like just because it you know your performance sort of threw it into my mind you got into poetry through slam or or how did you get into poetry yeah yeah. you had a poem in 2017 that um that didn't win the roundhouse slam and there's actually a little author's note just next to the poem um from the previous work (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So basically, like, yeah, absolutely. I really, I just thought poetry was something 
completely boring like most of my life I was like it's what we have to do at GCSE uh honestly like you know it was this very like utilitarian thing right like you're just looking at it purely to like comprehend it and uh I don't know I didn't really understand I, I sort of had poetry in this category of, of stuff that you have to study um and I didn't really recognize the fact that you know the music that um, I listened to at home or with my family or the the way that people told stories in like the dialect that my grandparents speak or that like or just that anything else could be poetry and um, I used to watch a lot of like button poetry and slam poetry on on YouTube and just be like this is something really cool but it's not it's not like proper poetry right and I think that's obviously I just internalized so many of those like hierarchies of like high art and low art and that's obviously really racialized um and then when I was at uni, yeah, I was just, honestly, I was quite depressed in my second year. And uh, one of the, like, there was like a nurse that I went to see and she was just like, um, what is something that you have always wanted to do, but that you, you don't think you can do? And I was like, honestly, like secretly, I would love to try out um, like slam poetry and, uh, you know, do that kind of performance poetry. But, you know, I just don't think, you know, obviously I can't really do that. You know, I just can't imagine myself doing that. And so she was the one who was like, all right, you're going to go. So she, she signed me up for the slam. She like got me, she found it. She like got me to go. I didn't tell anyone about it. Um, and yeah, next thing you know, like it's like, all right, people think I'm, I'm okay at this. Like I'm, you know, managed to, you know, get myself a few feature slots at that same night, a couple of times, did a bit of hammer and tongue, did a bit of, um, was on, on my uni's team for the uni slam. And then it was after that, that I, I performed at the roundhouse poetry slam. And, um, I always say that like, the funny thing about it is that I forget that I didn't win it because I didn't win it. But I honestly, it changed my life because my performance in the final of that slam, um, it got two million views online. So after that, basically, you know, that just changed everything because people were like, you know, A, they know about you, but B, they they kind of assume that you have more where that comes from, right? So people were inviting me to do all sorts of stuff. And I was like, uh-oh, like they think I've got more than like four poems. So I'm going to have to write more than four poems. So so yeah, and then here I am now, like, you know, had no clue that this would be something I'd be, be spending my time doing. And, and, you know, as you say, I've got a collection. So just shows you, uh, don't don't have to plan everything. Sometimes things can just unroll in the most weird and wacky of ways. Mm, for sure, for sure. And I think that when, when a poem... Uh, what's the right way to say this? when a poem is right for the times, sometimes it gets picked up. And, you know, that's kind of what the process of going viral is. But, you know, outside of just social media, Bang the poem was, uh, yeah, like, the, you know, it's called uh, This Is Not A Humanising Poem. And in that piece, you speak about, um, well, you speak about, like, the, the line at the end, which is, if I, basically, if I, if, if I have to prove my humanity, then that's your, like, Sorry, I'm a butcher that. <laughs> I love it. Do you know what? I, uh, even to this day, my mum like misquotes that line to me, and she's like, <laughs> just makes it up. But yeah, yeah, it's um. Let me try and get it. It's uh. If you need me to prove my humanity, I'm not the one that's not human. Yes, exactly. What a, what a thing to say. What a what a powerful way to say it. And um, after you um, after you were performing in slams. How did you make the transition to wanting to put out a collection? What was that uh, process like for you? Because yeah, obviously moving from moving from sort of pieces that are maybe uh, performance minded or or at least created with the stage in mind to be spoken, 
Um, sometimes it's hard to have that same energy on the page and yet you achieve it in absolute droves but you also add a lot of extra stuff in uh, with with your book there's kind of author's notes explaining you know um, political context explaining your own personal context um, historical fiction sorry historical annotations and stuff so I love how you bring that all together could you speak maybe about sort of what that process was like for sure yeah um I mean I'm really glad that it, it comes across that way because I honestly was really nervous about um sharing my work in this format because as you say I mean I don't know if you feel the same but I feel like when you're performing your own work when you're when you're able to you can emphasize the words you want to emphasize you can move your body in the way you want to move it you can pause and and also you can adapt to the audience in front of you right so for some audiences you're going to leave a bigger pause there you're going to look them in the eye for for another audience you're going to be like you know it's like a knowing nod right it's it's very you can kind of bring life to that poem in so many different ways and I feel I felt really afraid that writing down some of this work um, I mean some of the poems in the collection are obviously poems that I have never and kind of wouldn't necessarily read or or perform but but a lot of them are and I think I was really really scared about the idea that you know somebody can just be on the bus reading this you know at their own pace without like kind of stopping to pause in the right places and I think that uh, process for me was was one also of, I suppose, like trusting my own work. Um, And I think that's something that I didn't realise was such a big deal for me, but to trust that the message carries, to trust that people will have their own relationship with the work, no matter how you give it to them. So I think I had kind of convinced myself that my performance controls the terms on which you engage with my work. But the truth is that people will always you know, receive it based on what's happened to them that day, what's happened to them, you know, 10 minutes before they saw your poem, you know, they might be kind of, uh, I've just had a fight with somebody and then they see your poem on YouTube or they might be reading it after they've just had a really long day at work and it, or you might be performing it in front of them and you don't know, you know, what, what kind of their battles are, whatever. I think that helped me to trust that, you know, that is the beauty of poetry that you offer up this vulnerability and you say, look, like, I trust you with this amalgamation of thoughts and feelings I've had and from one human to another, I hope you will receive this in a way that you understand to be your own way rather than to to kind of project onto me what you want me to be. And I think the reason that I'm kind of emphasizing this and it was a particular issue for me is that I think so much of my work is also really aware of and preoccupied with the gazes that are on me in a structural sense. So white supremacy, uh, colonialism, patriarchal gazes, like all these, all these ways in which I'm seen, especially as a visibly Muslim woman, the ways that there are all these assumptions attached to, to me when I speak so that when I speak, I'm actually having to speak through this kind of fog of ideas and, and, you know, to be heard, I have to get all the way through there to say, like, listen to me on my own terms. I'm not speaking about these other things. And I think that, added to that other sense that like can I trust an audience right like you know they're going to see me they're going to see my name like will they actually listen to what I'm saying and so in actual fact it was a really tough process and I I hadn't I had thought about doing it for a while but it's only because I um published with Verve Poetry Press me and my friends we published an anthology earlier that year and then they the, the publishers themselves were like have you thought about doing a collection? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's for me. And and so, yeah, I think it was sort of, uh, it was sort of through that process of trusting them, uh, you know, kind of having certain boundaries about like what I would and wouldn't be happy to 
um, you know, publish in terms of editing and also marketing, right? Like that's a big fear as well. Like I don't want to be marketed as like that that Muslim girl who like is our one poet that we're going to tokenize and all the like. There's just so many different elements to it that I think you know, at the end of the day, publishing is also an industry and like as much as we don't profit from it, somebody does. And so I think there was so many elements to think about, but ultimately I'm happy with the decision. And like, it's been such a blessing to to meet so many people through this collection and go to so many places. And I mean, obviously that was all cut short by, by the pandemic, but, you know, I feel like even in the short time I got, like it, it really, it's been a blessing. And, and it's such a blessing to know that you, for example, have this in your hands right now, like the other people around uh, the country and even the world do. So yeah, man, bit of, a, bit of a wild process, lots of things to think about. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I, uh, so that was all a, a wild tangent, um, just just thrown up by, by by your wonderful performance of that piece. Um, and, and, so, and so I wanted to speak about about museums recently hmm. um, because in this poem you, you there's that wonderful line where you say as if my things weren't already coveted and stolen hmm. sorry read salvaged and reallocated to make up these museums in the first place it's hmm. almost as if history is less about what happened than maintaining ideology and i've and i've been thinking about the way in which museums are used as a like a cultural technology mm. to, to to you know uh, recontextualize and it's a weapon of it, it like it's a weapon of culture in the war of colonialism because as you say also you take objects and you contextualize them in in a specific way often alongside you know the ancient and uh, the uh, you know uh, oriental and the otherwise like erased mm. and it's just been it's been really hitting home there's a lot of good books and conversation happening around it now um there's a book called brutish museums which is a, a lot about this um there's somebody who even spoke to uh, nadine el anani I think her, her name is yeah. um, about British Empire and um, Br- the British nation. So, like, yeah, could you speak maybe speak to speak to that process and like, um, yeah, I, I'd just love to hear your thoughts about about what you were speaking to when you wrote those lines. Yeah, man, I think oh, you, I really love what you how you phrased that about uh, tech, technology of culture. I thought that's a really good. Um, Good description. I think, you know, what I'm talking about in this poem is it's pretty straightforward as much as it is complex, right? It's like, if, when we think about his, I mean, I studied history, right? And like, I think at university, and, and I think it was something that I became really aware of that we only really are told that history is what what is formally archived, right? So like when you want to go do your history dissertation, off you go to the National Archive or to the local archive and, and go have a rummage around. So I had decided I wanted to write my dissertation about the experiences of um, Pakistani immigrant women who came to the UK between the 60s and the 80s. So that's my grandma, basically. So I was like, all right, awesome, let me go. Now, <laughs> lo and behold, the only reference to these women in the archives is by you know cultural anthropologists, by local community relations boards, uh, local kind of education committees. And in all of these texts, these women are, uh, you know, if I was to go by these texts, these women are uneducated, they're oppressed, they're submissive, they're scared to go outside, they do what their husbands tell them. They're, you know, it's just replete with these racist tropes and racist ideas that the, obviously the people at the time 
uh, and, and even now, but the people that had that were writing those sources. And so, you know, that made it very evident to me that, well, hang on, the archive isn't just this place of like, um, you know, undisputed fact about the past. It's very much someone's opinion. And so I got in a really big sort of uh, tangle because I decided to do an oral history project, right? So I was going to talk to these women themselves, you know, and, uh, the, the, those of them who are still alive and, and ask like, you know, what, what, what do you recollect? What happened with you? And so one of the kind of uh, things that came up at that time was, okay, but like if you're using oral evidence, remember it's going to be super subjective. Like it's going to be um, prone to like what these people do and don't remember. Like they're going to say certain things because they want to appear to you in a certain way. And my retort to that was, that's exactly what the archive does, right? Like there's not a single, it's not that like, oh, the archive is more true than these women or these women are more true than the archive. It's that every single source we have about the past is is full of its own biases, full of its own inflections of how you want to be presented in the future, full of, you know, all the kind of little, uh, you know, micro and macro context. And so, you know, on a macro level, that, that means that we have this colonial lens that informs so much of, of the sources we have about the past. But on top of that, you know, you mentioned erasure earlier. And um, I read a really brilliant book um, recently by Ian Cobain. I actually can't remember what it's called, but it'll come back to me. But he talks about, you know, how actually after the kind of formal end of colonialism, so many archives were literally destroyed. You know, they, they dumped evidence in the sea, in the ocean. Operation Legacy, that was called. That's it. Thank you. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, that, that also speaks volumes about the, the power of, of the archive and the power of removing the archive. So when you talk about museums, I think that's an important context because museums then become like an as you say, it's sort of pitched to us as like, this is an alternative form of archive. Like we have visual um, reference to the past. We have, um, you know, maybe like material reference to the past, or maybe sculptures or objects. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's now become quite common, I guess, to say that like the British Museum, we all know is just full of stolen objects. Um, and I think what's interesting to think about is what you said, like what message does that send out? Like, what does it say when we call this even the British Museum? Like, uh, on the one hand, yes, is the narrative that Britain itself wants to portray that, like, you know, all these things are ours, that we somehow have this relationship of, like, ownership to the rest of the world. But also for us who want to disrupt that narrative, it says something else. It says that Britain is nothing without us. It says that museum would be empty if it wasn't full of the things that it stole. And therefore, it actually provides, I think, quite a radical way for us to reframe our relationship to this place and say, no, 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 like we're, it's not a matter of whether you want to include or exclude us. You are nothing without us, right? And I think that's, that's you know, you mentioned the conversation I had with Nadine El Anani, and I think one of the things that she's really brilliant at articulating in her work is that um, it's not a matter solely of like, oh, we need to give all the things in the British Museum back to the countries they were stolen from. It's the fact that the British welfare state, the British infrastructure, British commerce is all built on the back of colonialism and slavery, right? So even the money, uh, not even just the money that like people made in literally like owning plantations and human beings, but also the money that they made when slavery was abolished, the money that they were given as compensation, which is the second biggest bailout in history, only second to uh, the 2008 bailout of the banks, right? So if that money is actually underpinning, you know, literally our universities, our museums, our libraries, our town halls, our government buildings, our streets, our lampposts, our healthcare, like all of that, then the question of, of, of also like museums and ownership and all those questions also becomes a question of like, who's, 
who is not who does not belong to Britain who does who who doesn't have a right to be here because every single person really around the world has a right to be here there shouldn't be such thing as you know people seeking asylum here because you know this country only exists because of all the colonized um, and enslaved labor that, that it relied on and, and stealing and extraction obviously of resources and money so yeah I mean sorry I can go on about that for ages but I think that the point that you make is is very very clear and very important and, and that's why we have to always disrupt these these kind of ideological um yeah technologies of power yeah and that line just as you end the poem you know so when you ask where my past is ask instead what yours is without mine yeah absolutely i think that's the the fundamental question yeah like there's uh, you are right in the um Actually, let's 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 flip this on its head as well, because you mentioned something at the end there, which is that you could go on about this forever. (laughs) And that speaks, weirdly enough, to, I think, the exhaustion of um, of 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 fighting and like, you know, um, effectively the struggle for change Um, and and on many different fronts, um, history as as a process and like as a uh, as a concept is a site for struggle for liberation, like alongside, sorry, for oppressed peoples, you know? And I think about the history of um, the British wars in West Africa, like the Ashanti Wars, you know? And so much of the loot that was taken is in museums, not even on display. Like, um, once again, this is a quote from uh, from British Museums, that, that book. Um, there's something like, you know, it's something crazy, like over 94% of the actual uh, loot and stuff that was taken is just in storage, not even on display. Wow. Which is a crazy thing to think about. And also what that wealth represents um, and also, like, culturally what, what that does to mm. an idea of one's nation. Well, that erasure does. Yeah, exactly, you know. So it can be very exhausting <laughs> to think about this. How do you, this is just a wild, a wild question, um, how do you keep yourself, like, going, you know? Um, it's a deep question, but I'm thinking what gives you, you know, what keeps you fighting when yeah. it's hard, when it's exhausting? Because Lord knows it's hard and it's exhausting. It's been an exhausting year. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it's only, what, seven weeks in? <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, man. I mean, look, this is a question that actually I get asked quite a bit, and I think it's so it's made me think about it, right? It's like, oh yeah, like what does make me keep going? And I think, honestly, like for me, having faith that this world is not the end is not the only reality is is so crucial because, <laughs> to be honest, I think you know. So I'm Muslim, but obviously, so many. Um, faith traditions believe that there is like life after death and I think that is important because it's like you know it makes what you do in this world I feel more worth it almost and and that might sound ironic right because you might be thinking well no it doesn't because it's like it's over but actually for me it's the fact that it kind of means that what I do in this world doesn't have to be successful right like I don't have to actually see the fruits of all these efforts to you know kind of create basic justice and livable conditions for people but if I genuinely try if I if my heart is really in it if I uh, really want it and care enough about others um, you know the same amount that I care about myself then I believe that that's what counts it's the effort that we put in and that's what kind of you know you're working really for and towards and so I mean 
that somehow I find peace in that and I find that it also takes some of the the pressure off I think of kind of like going and going and going right and just like the only way it's worth it is the outcome I think this way it feels that like the the what makes it worth it is you know the relationships we make on the way the people that we meet on the journey the conversations that we have the ways that we we grow and learn as well like in many ways we are the outcome of our of our own labor and like you know I think that's the process of becoming wiser, you know, as cliche as it sounds, it's also a process of just realizing how much, how much we're not going to be able to do, how little we do really know. And I think that's also a journey that I'm more interested in now as well. Like who, you know, if, if all of the things that I do publicly disappeared, right? Like this is a kind of uh, Islamic idea that if you didn't have, if, if it's kind of comes from the presumption that if lots of the things that we do publicly are kind of actually, um, underpinned by a desire for kind of praise and like other people to think that we're clever or good or interesting or whatever so if, if we move all of those things then what are we left with like who are we without the public um kind of persona of what we do and if that private persona of who we are you know is is not really who we would like to be then that's also something I'm interested in working on so I mean yeah I, I think in terms of just like what keeps me going it's it's that I guess that reminder that like I'm always going to have me and I, I'm always going to be something I can work on. And so even when other things feel unattainable, unachievable, perhaps despairingly big and too difficult, then you know what? Like I am also the fruit of my labors. And so I don't know, it's something I've been trying to think about this year, particularly maybe because we've been so isolated from one another. Um, and I've had more time to, you know, read and think and journal and kind of experience my body right be like I'm in this body it's not just a machine to get me from place to place it's not just a thing to kind of uh push to its limits to get work out of it's actually you know we've been thinking a lot about health this year right it's like this is the this is me this body is also me and it's the thing that keeps me alive so I, you know I, I yeah I, <laughs> I don't know I can go in different directions of this but I, yeah these are the things I guess that have been helping me through through this year particularly that's all really that's all really helped <laughs> funnily enough that's all very very helpful um i've been doing some journaling myself uh, it's a good way to round off a day i find and it's definitely mm. what you say about this year um with the with the with the pandemic and just the increased amount of time people have been spending with themselves by themselves it does force force is a wrong way of saying it it's helped people have to confront like living with themselves and oftentimes I feel like I'm just you know um you were speaking about burnout before lordy do I burn out <laughs> mm. but something about poetry and linking it back to what you said something um earlier about um you know you don't know when someone is gonna pick up your book and like what context they're gonna bring to it sometimes I don't know what a book is what a book is going to bring to me mm. and across this year um a lot of time alone and reading reading the work of people like yourself who are like you know my peers and my friends but also incredible writers and poets and who are who are like you say really trying to to, to put good art out into the world that's been a thing that's kept me going <laughs> it's been a thing that's given me joy um, mm. And being able, being able to speak to, being able to speak and have these conversations, um, especially at a time when, um, you know, isolation is an unhealthy like state for human beings. We're we're built to be social creatures, you know, like, yeah. Um, 
I wanted to put that on record basically to say that that's another thing that's kept me going. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, maybe we should take this point to take another poem. Sure. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, it's funny, before you started speaking just then, I was like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a poem about how lonely I've been feeling. But now I'm like, oh, do you know what? Now you're bringing me hope vibes. You're giving me, giving me, giving me humanity's worth it vibes. So, um, maybe, maybe it is. <laughs> I think um, I think I'm actually going to do a poem that's called um, "A Virtue of Disobedience." Um, it's basically, you know, that that notion of kind of trying anyway, right? Striving and 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 kind of pushing and and working. And I actually wrote this as a um as a kind of preface, I guess, to um, a book of the same name um, by uh, Dr. Asim Qureshi. And um, I, I feel like, I feel like this poem is, is hopeful. I hope it is. Um, Yeah. So here we go. We are the disobedient. Look upon us and despair. For we outlast history, time and memory. We are always there. We are the unquenchable thirst for justice, the bodies that do not bend, the tongues you cannot straightjacket and eyes that will not be turned blind. We are the step you trip on in the night, the nightmare you wake from but cannot recall, the lump under the rolling hill that reminds you what is buried there. We are the disobedient. We bear witness and we testify. We love despite the lie that we are not worthy. We hold despite being told we should hide. Yes. We are the disobedient who refuse to die, for bodies without eulogies will never remain in their graves. We are the ghosts of the unmourned and the spirits of the never grieved. We are the original traitors to the tireless tyrant. We are Muhammad, we are Malcolm, we are Moses and Asata, we are Tucson and Bashani, we are Rosa and Rabani. We are the disobedient. Truth speakers with tongues of fire, knowledge seekers who provoke your ire, mouths always moist from sincere prayer, we are hearts beating for the truth. Not like fluttering birds in cages, but like the earth in her final convulsions, like mountains when they scatter to dust. We dismantle, uproot, expose. We are the disobedient. And we have come not to claim what is yours, but what is and always was ours, our humanity. But no, not claim, for it was always with us, and our announcement of that is the blasphemy you burn us for. But there's a reason you mustn't play with fire, because the flames are not bound by only your aims. If you burn our bodies in the morning, the fire will be licking your heels that night. Do you feel secure, then, when we are bound not by law, but justice, loyal not to penmark on paper, but truth? We are unconquerable and unmanageable because you can take what you want if all you want is to take. We are your greatest fear, fearless, loyal not even to life. There is no bargain to be made then for disruption is our only security in a world which says security is ensured only through our oppression. What basis has such authority to be obeyed? No. We are the disobedient who refuse to know our place. Undivided, low and mighty, we are a we. A unity, a community, a principle above place. We are the disobedient, we declare the emperor naked and don't kneel before the queen. We smash the idols, confront the pharaoh, upend the fabric of the world. We will not sell our souls for hallowed halls. We cannot be unmoved. We are the disobedient. 
We overspill and overspeak. We are unboxed, unharnessed, unfathomable, unpalatable, uncompromising. Oh, Ozymandiases of the world, did you really think yourselves kings of kings? How quickly you forget. Nothing outlasts the fading of the day, but the light of truth itself. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm so gassed. Oh. <laughs> I'm sitting there being like, you catch yourself listening to the poem and then forget you're recording a podcast. Thank you for sharing that again, uh, Sahema. Um, thank you for letting me. <laughs> yeah. And so one thing that I love um, about the way you write um, and, and, and the way you read is the rhythm uh, and and the pattern of speech that you sink into when you flow, especially when you're performing. Um, but looking at it on the page as well, it's wonderful to see how um, how the verses are set out kind of like sections of thought. And then that thought is also a pattern of itself. You know, you move from... You're, you're speaking about the we and who the we are and, and, and then it's what the we do. We are the disobedient, you know, and then and then you're straight back in to being, you know, we are the unity, a community, principle, our place. And you speak, <laughs> you make it funny, like, you know, like, <laughs> you make it, I smile when I read it because it's defiant, you know, and there's something about that defiance which, um, which, which gives me hope, um, yeah. yeah, I appreciate that because I, I, I feel that as well. I feel like I feel my best version of myself when I'm actually defiant in that way. Defiant, not stubborn, but defiant where it's like, I know this to be true. And do you know what? Like, no, you can't change my mind. And there's some, I don't know, I feel like it taps into that spirit of me that sometimes goes missing. You know, you sometimes lose. You're like, where, where's she gone? Where's that, where's that part? Mm. And I, yeah, so it's actually nice to get a chance to read it and kind of, it, it it kind of I feel that in my body I feel that sense of hope as well yeah there is something about the rhythm of reading it as well like you have to physically move your body in the way to make those noises in that pattern yeah that is a rhythm like of the body in and of itself um I've been thinking a lot about um uh performance recently and obviously now during the pandemic we haven't been uh, able to regularly perform in person you know uh, in, in in live venues or anything like that um and it's and it's meant that my my practice aka like just when i practice performing has completely changed mm. and so and so now when i write out things on the page to read them out physically i think about how the words are coming out in a completely different way because i'm trying to emulate how things felt when I was just on stage mm. and I'm trying to like marry the two, you know? Um, and I think that that's, um, it's a really difficult thing that, 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 that you pull off fairly well <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's super impressive. Um, and it's, and it's in all your poems across the book. There's a piece you have called a uh, bacon banknotes, Benjamin, <laughs> uh, which was filmed by, uh, by Peter Hayhoe for, for Muddy Feet. And I think it was um, a commission for, Inua Elms's rap party. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm, I, I'm going to selfishly just request that uh, you maybe read that poem. Oh, mate, it loves you. Not done it for so long. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm completely up for that. <laughs> Love it. For the hip-hop heads. Bacon, banknotes, Benjamins. 
cheddar cheese, dead presidents, Betty, Franklin's, G's and Green's, Lincoln's, Moolah, Piso's, Peas. It's all about the ma-ma-ma-ma-ma. Less about the shimmy-shimmy-ya-shimmy-yay like Jay-Z says he's not a businessman. He's a business man, and to let him handle his business, damn. But isn't being a businessman not too far from being a product? And isn't being a product on the road to being sold? And isn't that exactly what was wrapped about before aiming for platinum and gold? Because it seems to me that from fighting the power, we've gone to climbing that tower. And freedom's been appropriated as buying brand attire. Freedom of the people rebranded as a market is Pinochet again, but in lyrical format. Because the corporate capturing of a critical subculture, then selling it back to people of colour as Apple, Samsung, Nike and Chrysler is not so different from the conquest of our lands, private exploitation of resources from our hands, raw materials taken then sold back to us for profit just as messages of subversion have been rebranded for the market. But I guess it's easier to celebrate the mass consumption of hip hop than to ask who's generating the wealth and is actually on top and making the bacon, banknotes, Benjamins. Cheddar, cheese, dead presidents, Fetty, Franklin's, G's and Green's, Lincoln's, Moolah, Piso's, Peas. Formerly freedom fermented in street parties, a way to gain power as a disenfranchised culture. But now it seems power gaining is the culture. No more emphasis on free thinking for liberation, the critiques are only woke enough to pass for entertainment. Not woke enough that they're consequential. Not like Zulu Nation's revolutionary potential. Now freedom is framed firstly as financial fixation, the freedom to consume, not socio-political emancipation. So the outcome is still the same for the majority. Most racialized people still face intergenerational poverty. To avert the problem, we're told, keep up the grind so you can wine and dine. Capitalism is apparent, silver lining. But grinding is rap language for pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, ignoring that our boots are being worn on others' feet, and very few people are still rapping about that feet and that cheat that means the same people are incarcerated, there's a social housing crisis and surveillance state, the ghettos are still ghettos, the consumers are still marginalised, the only thing that's changed is that the genre has been gentrified for the sake of the bacon, banknotes, Benjamins, cheddar, cheese, dead presidents, Fetty, Franklin's, G's and Green's, Lincoln's, Moolah, Piso's, Peas. My outline in the co-option of hip-hop by capitalism is not just condemnation, but speculation about whether hip-hop is not just a metaphor for the marketization of all resistance, the consumption of our other messages, t-shirts about being feminist made by women in sweatshop factories, anti-capitalist as an aesthetic vibe, liberals buying clothes for double their price, ally as a hashtag used by allies who moved out of our neighbourhoods, and Californian avocado eating vegans wasting water on avocado growth. The techniques of resistance have never been so mortal, from the decentralised screams of the dispossessed to modern-day accumulation by dispossession. Soon enough, Kanye will rap about decolonizing the university. Snoop will ask you to queer your cookbook. Jay-Z, subvert your wardrobe and drape your bed. Because there's nothing more alarming than poor people of colour claiming power, but nothing so easily disarming as misdirecting us towards only the bacon, banknotes, Benjamins, cheddar, cheese, dead presidents, Fetty, Franklin's, G's and Green's, Lincoln's, Moolah, Piso's, Peas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoop, 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 I haven't got sound effects. But I don't know. That's better. That's better what you do. Yeah. 
Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, could you, I mean, yeah, speak about how maybe this poem came about? Um, I know it was a commission uh, for Rap Party. Yeah, man, good question. <laughs> um, so, do you know what? The truth is, I, I used to listen a little bit to hip-hop, but not a lot. Like, I'm not a... I've honestly actually really struggled to listen to just listen to things in general. But um, but my introduction uh, to, to, like, rap and hip-hop was really through... Um, my uh my mum's sibling my un- my uncle who uh, was like super politicized during the 80s and the 90s i guess then it was very like public enemy type of like only only things that were super political right um immortal technique was like one of the first things he was like this is what you need to listen to i was like it's completely inappropriate but fair enough um but in the deep end i <laughs> know <laughs> i was like oh yeah this is this is what everyone's listening to right um but i think doing that i i i my understanding of rap has always been, you know, I, I didn't really have an understanding of it as anything other than political. And um, for this poem in particular, I did, uh, you know, take a bit of time to, to do my research around sort of, um, you know, what was going on, how how this genre developed, hip hop came about. And uh, the, like I mentioned, the street parties and, and Zulu Nation and these sort of um, very organic processes, I suppose, that, were, that seemed to have been happening at the time. I mean, I was aware in this poem as well that I didn't want to sort of co-opt um a culture that is obviously very much like the experiences of, of black um, African Americans. And I think why that's why I try to focus the poem specifically on the co-option of what I see as like a very radical resistance movement. And I think also why for me, the poem is more specifically about uh, capitalism um, than it is necessarily about hip hop. And I say that in the sense that, you know, lots of those um, processes that I trace happening, like the kind of dilution of the messaging um, and the kind of focus more on like, you know, how big a name you can become. It's not only like against the ethos of kind of how I believe this genre came to be in the first place um, and the very like collectivist vision of like very anti-racist, very anti-imperialist movement building, um, but also that that's something that we see even now, right? Like we see the same thing happening um, I would say even in like if we talk about spoken word poetry today now I think that it's become let's very let's go <laughs> I think it's become very easy to uh, ha- ha- share a woke poem right and I say woke in quotation marks because I think we, there's become like this idea of like these are the you know these are topics like we want to talk about a bit of racism we're going to talk about a bit of sexism and, and we're just going to you know package it up in a way that's like get people kind of behind it but I don't know if that means that the messages we're actually talking and thinking about are critical or if they're still kind of within that idea of, they're still upholding, I guess, like ideas uh, that are not, that are not exactly critical and that can be co-opted. And, and, you know, if, if actually that's leaning into more of that kind of influencer culture where it's like, actually you're doing it for the reasons of becoming known for doing that. And like, I don't know, I think the, you know, sorry, I'm rambling a bit, but I think that's also linked to then like how our broader thinking about anti-racism has just really changed so drastically to to the point where we don't think about collective struggle. We just think about like personal personalities, right? We've got like, that's the anti-racist person who's going to go on the panel and, you know, talk uh, about this. I don't know. I just think that we... Okay. Yeah, I'm going to stop there, but... (laughs) So I wanted to... I wanted to come in, um, but I didn't want to cut you off because I think what you're speaking about here is the individualism and like the individualistic culture, which has now 
which is a central part of neoliberalism, you know, as as you mentioned, is Pinochet, like, and it's also a central part of how, like, specifically British like culture has has like fashioned society, and mm. it's even since, and it's obviously seeped into, uh, you know, um, <laughs> quote activism and like, what do we call activism? And if you're doing your, you know, three minute poem, which is you know, which is saying racism is bad. Is, is, is that activism? Is that being critical? Is that, like, a part of a collective struggle and sustained work? Is that part of, like, organised, like, movement? And, like, you know, obviously poetry is a huge part of that and this isn't to disparage poetry um, or, 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 or these pieces because they serve their purpose and they're important that they're written. But there is definitely something odd about, um, like, I think the lack of critical... Like, the lack of critical... Di- well, not discourse... The lack of criticism around what the intention of our poetry is. Why are we doing this? You know, are we doing this to be known? Are we doing this to be to be personally recognised and to have those like you know uh, to to have that personal privilege, or are we doing it for a different reason? What is our purpose? You know, um, and I think that you do you know you place hip hop firmly square in that conversation because what is its purpose uh, you know if if uh, if 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 snoop is gonna okay and i love snoop and you mentioned snoop in this poem right <laughs> i have to say this people people who um who have spoken to me about hip-hop will, will understand snoop will ask you to queer your cookbook Snoop, has Snoop sold out? Is it possible for Snoop to sell out? Like, we have to ask these questions because Snoop is as capitalist as they come. Mm. Like, he's making a lot of money, but, you know, but what is his purpose? Like, you know, it, what is he doing with it? And I would argue that Snoop is doing a lot of good with the money and privilege that he has. And, but we have to ask these questions of, 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 like, of hip-hop and, and hip-hop as a culture because, as you say, it's about the bacon banknotes Benjamins and it's been co-opted by capitalism, as everything has. Yeah, and I think, to be fair, like, I think I think it's easy to, like, say these things, what I'm saying. Um, and I think it's much harder, like, but it's much harder to, to live it, right? And I think the reality is, like, and it goes back to what you're saying about intentions as well, that we don't, you don't always know the full story, right? Like, you can see a lot of what's going on and you don't know and I think I don't know it's tough isn't it because like as 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 a freelancer as somebody who um you know art is not a really stable career for anybody um uh, except very few people I think that obviously money is always a question that you're also thinking about right like income and tax returns and all these these uh yeah security right and I think that yeah I think it's just it's I think there's also so you talked about individualism I think but there's also then the level of like do we individualize the problem too right like is it even useful for me to blame individuals um no it's not because the fact is that we're all playing the games playing by the rules of the game that that's already been set and so actually you know are we diverting our attention by kind of lambasting certain people for what they may or may not be doing are we actually diverting attention away from well, hey, hang on, what's the underlying structure of or power dynamic here, which means that the majority of us have to sell our time and our skills um, for a wage that somebody else keeps the majority of the, the value of. And, and and obviously, like, no, that's not that's not down to these individual people at all. So I think that's <laughs> another that's another thing that's, you know, so easily 
I think so easy to lose sight of every time you think that you're looking at the problem it, it kind of evades you and I think that's also why it's so easy for capitalism to to co-opt things because it doesn't ever seem like it's capitalism doing the co-option right it's like you know this summer we saw every single organization and company you can possibly think of come out with a, a BLM statement but like at the same time no one was talking about how capitalism is white supremacy like you can't we, how can can we can we say that we oppose a dehumanization of black lives whilst also being within that system so i mean these are big questions and i'm not saying i have the answer either like i think it's just that you 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 kind of reflecting on what i was saying that made me think that actually what i was saying was kind of harsh <laughs> and like <laughs> i actually don't know if i'm like i can 100% back it myself and like it is more messy and and we're we're more complex than that but but hey <laughs> Which brings me nicely on to uh, your podcast, Breaking Binaries, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you're saying about like being it being more complex than black and white, you know. Um, I, I love what you're doing with this podcast. So for people who, who don't know, haven't heard, could you just explain uh, what the podcast is and what you're trying to do with it? What's the intention? Sure. sure. So Breaking Binaries is pretty simple. It's in the name. Like um, the idea came about because I feel like there's so many like ideas that we have about things that are very like well literally binary I was trying to think of another word but <laughs> we think of things in this like very binary way so examples would be you know um that person is uh, either guilty of the crime or innocent of it right and there's no kind of nuance there's no context that we give but we also apply it in very everyday situations right where it's like uh, that person is good or bad right that person is a liar or they're truthful um you know those the, this thing is like, uh, I, don't, I don't know, like this, you know, illegal immigrants and legal immigrants. There's so many that we hear every day, like even with uh, COVID, right? It's like there's either the people who are abiding by the rules or the people who are breaking the rules. But in all those uh, binaries, I guess what interested me was that the binary hides the context. So we don't talk, we talk about the rule breakers and the non-rule breakers, but we don't talk about the fact that the government has created this absolutely, you know, chaotic and violent genocidal situation wherein to be honest, if you're breaking the rules, it's not because I, I don't believe it's because you're an inherently bad person. It's because of the circumstances, which mean that realistically, only 20% of people we found out recently can isolate for the full time you're supposed to un under um, the kind of COVID restrictions because we simply can't afford to because where are we going to get um, the money to, to simply just be off work for, for all that time or stay at home for all that time. So I guess what I'm saying is that breaking binaries is really, it's just a chance for me to have conversations with like people that I really admire, activists and academics and scholars, um, and they help me to break down these binaries. And, and as I say, the thing we're always really trying to ask is, you know, who does this binary benefit? Like, who does it benefit that we go around thinking about each other in these ways? And I guess if I can say one thing that I've really learned more than anything from these conversations, it's just that, like, the messier and the more complex the conversation, I think the more we, we kind of uh, fear it. I think we fear those messy conversations because they also ask us to ask really difficult questions of ourselves. And so I often leave those conversations feeling like, oh, oh, like that's tough because now I can't just think of myself as solely, you know, a good person or an ethical person or somebody who is, you know, has radical as opposed to liberal politics. It's like, it's always so much more complicated. And so, but that's, that's beautiful as well, I think. And like, that is why I think, you know, I think art and poetry and, and all mediums of kind of, communicating complexity are rooted also in that kind of um that struggle of like nuance right of retaining the mess and realizing that the mess is where the most interesting things happen and I think if if we see colonialism as like this universalizing project then I think that in order to do any semblance of decolonizing anything 
we really have to be willing to to not have you know uh straightforward simple universal um be all and end all answers and that our answers have to maybe not even be answers but just be more questions and i think there's something both disruptive but also reassuring about that to me at least you can have a listen to the podcast and let me know what you guys think <laughs> <laughs> oh careful careful people are going to come for you now nah, 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 nah. <laughs> it's true though like living in those difficult questions is such of the pleasure of poetry for me as well um and um yeah being able being able to being able to sit in discomfort maybe mm. i think about that a lot when i when i when I read, so I reread your collection um, in preparation for the uh, for the for the podcast, and I read it like in one sitting. Do you know what I mean? I sat down and I blitzed through it, and it was like a lot of it was staring the injustice in the face and feeling it in a way in which I hadn't like you know just just for the sheer matter of survival, you don't feel the fullness of these things all of the time. Mm. But I find that poetry can be a way in which I can feel that and 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 your poems like they're they're very directed <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you you call things by their name and and you call out the injustice by its name uh, and so much of the time it is empire and colonization and it's you know this this history of of, of what Britishness has been constructed to be you know and that is exclusionary and that is like a violent like process, you know. Um, and so I suppose I wanted to say um, with with your poetry, how has that been like? Because I know you write a lot that, you know, that isn't um, what would be phrased as, you know, like angry, political, all of these, like, bad stereotypes that we have around this poetry, which is, like, ge- real and genuine. Hmm. Like, ha- yeah, how how has... Um, yeah, how do you sit with this? How do you sit with this, like, the rage? I think I might have already asked this, to be honest. No, no, I think it's a slightly different question, I think. Um, it's funny because I myself haven't, haven't really uh, read my collection, like front to back for, for I mean probably since I published it right like <laughs> um yeah, yeah and I yeah. and I think when I when I do dip into it for like readings or whatever I I sometimes feel a little bit sad that <clears throat> you know so much of my so much of my creative energy is also you know just trying to I guess cathartically express all this pain and rage and I I do sort of Catharsis. yeah Catharsis is the important word there I feel a lot I that that was a word I was trying to flick around and search for in yes. my mind when I was describing the process because I'm like it was painful but it was like you know I, I I will be absolutely proud to say that I had a little cry at some point so I'm just like oh it's also awful <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I was like oh we can I get to chat to Sahima <laughs> like, <laughs> no I hear you I hear that no no I just that I hear that and I think um. Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know because I think you're asking me at such a weird time in in the world um, where I'm kind of like, whoa, what, what, where is my rage? Like, I just feel like I've become numbed to rage at this point where I'm like, or maybe at the same time, I'm just so overwhelmed by it because I do feel like, you know, I can't engage with stuff like I used to. Honestly, like I go on social media for maybe five minutes a day and I'm like, uh-uh, uh-uh, I'm, I'm off now. And I, I think there's also like, um, yeah, there is a depletion of our resources that happens, I think, when we... I think 
yeah, I think I'm trying to find more less short-term reactionary ways of expressing my rage and more long-term kind of legacy building work that I can put my anger into. And I don't know, I'm also willing to just grow and change though, right? Like I'm willing for that to be something I think about this year and then next year I change my mind. And I think maybe like part of sitting with rage is also just like, like I said before about like, I guess caring for myself. Um, You know, Audrey Lord talks obviously about survivor and self-care as political acts and I think that the more I grow up the more that I feel like I understand that and I'm sure I'll disagree with myself next year and think I understand it even better but I I just feel like what that's really about as well as being able to sit with all that rage and not let it destroy us not let it eat us up and be able to sit with all that rage express it all but also not not exist only for it not only exist only not exist only to express it and I think um that's why I feel like this year I put much more energy into, you know, things that I can do just for me, solely for me. It's not about any of that, and it's and it's wholesome and it's it 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 nourishes me because I think rage also can, it can steal things from us, and I think that that we deserve more than just that. At the same time, we deserve that. So you know, it's that nuance. Um, but I don't have the answers. I'm just. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure asking out more, as well. Asking more of these brilliant questions, like yeah, it's it's um, it's a <laughs> yeah. I, I thank you for putting it in in those words, um, because I think it's about uh, it's about time. Sadly, that we round off. We've gone a little over time. Yeah, yeah that's um, fine. Which I, I, and I had to let you finish because I want people to take that away. That. Um, just go and like you know read what Audrey Lord said about self care and that being a political act. Um, I think that's an important energy uh, for people to take away, especially in these weird pandemic times. Um, but there is also one final question to end off, which is a question that I'm endeavouring to ask every poet that I have on. Um, and thank you once again for coming on, Sahima. It's been like an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Final question: Why poetry? Why poetry? Oh, I think poetry is, you know, at the beginning I told you what I thought poetry was. I never really got around to telling you what I now think it is. And um, the more that I have used poetry, the more I have felt that it is the why is because it's so natural. It is, I think, the most human way of expressing things and that might seem counterintuitive because we think of it as like this thing you need to study you need to practice and prep for and and yeah maybe in some ways you do but what I've noticed and learned and thought about is the way that like my grandparents come from part of uh, Pakistan that's the Punjab and uh, Punjabi dialect that they have specifically is to me is inherently poetic there is no real written form of the dialect they speak um, and they have of that rhythm in the way they speak. You know, you wouldn't have to understand what they're saying to hear the rhythm in what they say. And the song that makes up that culture, the the oral kind of storytelling and the, like, everything about it, just the more I thought about them, the more I thought that, you know, it's not a question of, of why poetry. It's that, you know, poetry, I feel like, is the first language that we all speak. You know, children, we don't have this coherency of grammar and linguistic features and, you know, all the kind of boundaries and rules. I think poetry just allows us to be really ourselves and really honest. And personally, I, when I journal, I am writing one type of way, but when I poem, 
I'm just being honest. I'm being deadly, deadly honest. And I think that for me is the why. Like there is no other choice. <laughs> Not to be melodramatic, but it's like it's the only way to be really, truly at kind of tapping into the nature of I think this miraculous way of speaking that that I feel is is God given. I feel like it's it's like one of the most beautiful blessings that that has been given to humankind is that we can speak in this way, that we can form communication styles and storytelling in this way. And we, you know, voice is such a special and amazing thing. And so I guess why poetry is just, you know, what else is there? What else could it be? (laughs) What else is there? It's so true. (laughs) When it comes down to it, like there's poetry and I know that, (laughs) like I knew that first. (laughs) I knew that and I still continue to know that. Thank you for such a wonderfully in-depth answer. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me. Wicked. Um, and finally, where can people uh, find you and find your, uh, you know, your podcast and your work and your books? Postcolonial banter from Verve Poetry Press. Go get it now. Thank you. Uh, yeah. My girl's guide to university. I bought that for my family. Oh, thank you, man. Yeah. I mean, uh, so my website is probably the best place. It's just literally www.sahaimah.com. And uh, the, everything that I have like written or work that I'm doing, podcast, audio, whatever, it's all, there's, there's links to it all there. So if you're interested, if, if, uh, if you're not interested, uh, you know, still check it out. Maybe, maybe there's something catch your eye. I've got a little reading list on there, suggestions of things that I, I enjoyed, all sorts. So yeah, knock yourself out. <laughs> wicked go check that out all the links will obviously be in the description uh thank you for listening everybody at lunar poetry podcast on all of the social media and um, obviously feel free to go to lunarpoetrypodcast.com uh for blogs and updates and uh all of the wonderful extras uh including the podcast po- uh, the poetry podcast finder which is a bank of over 100 poetry podcasts in the uk and ireland uh so if you just, you know, need to grab some more of that wonderful Poetry Podcast vibe, that's where you go. Um, thank you once again to Hamer for coming on, spending this time with us. Peace out. Thank you. Bye. And there it was. Wow. Thanks to Sahima for her time and her clarity and her honesty um i really enjoy speaking to zheimer um and it's great to get one of our conversations uh on wax recorded for posterity and to share it with you our wonderful lunar audience um thanks to you as well for sticking around right until the very end give yourself a pat on the back and uh, i'm glad you made the time for us for more from Sahima, go to www.sahima.com. That's S-U-H-A-I-Y-M-A-H. Um, and look out for her work. She is truly a phenomenal writer and thinker and educator. Just a quick run through of the admin bits and notes of gratitude to do before we round off. Um, we're still working to get the recent transcriptions for this batch of episodes uploaded. I think it will come... Um, towards the end of the first what I'm calling season of the podcast Um, just bear with us on that apologies for the inconvenience but transcripts oh take a lot of time in other news we've reached a massive milestone we've hit a grand total of just over 50,000 total listens 
that is an astonishing amount of time that you, the listeners, have spent with us. And I'd like to say thank you, thank you, thank you on behalf of the previous host and general legend, David Turner, and from myself personally as well. On to the next 129 episodes, on to the next more than 200 guests, and on to the next milestone. The next guest is uh, is actually a surprise, uh, because I'll be honest with you, we uh, haven't recorded the episode yet. But tune in next week to see who that mystery guest is. A final word of thanks to Ella Jean of the Mystery Planet Podcast Production Studio for her skills. And we're still dropping new episodes every week in February. So if you head to our website, lunarpoetrypodcast.com, you can find all the previous episodes and their accompanying transcripts alongside our Poetry Podcast Finder, which has over 100 other top quality poetry podcasts from the UK and Ireland for you to listen to. For your listening pleasure. And remember, you can keep up with all Lunar News by following at Lunar Poetry Podcasts on Facebook or at Lunar Poetry Pod on Twitter and subscribe to us wherever you go for quality podcasts. And again, just a message to say, if you enjoy the podcast, please do share it with somebody who also might enjoy it as word of mouth always has been the best recommendation system for us. And as Oscar Wilde himself said, a poet can survive anything but a misprint. Until next time, I've been your host doing the most, the repeat beat poet. Peace out, keep reading, and thank you for listening.